taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who was said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for this glorious day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunities we've had to feast together. We thank you for the chances we've had to play together and to worship. And now once again, we enter into a time of thinking about our life under your care and hearing your word and how you direct us and how you grow us and how you mature us. So, Father, open our eyes and our ears. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may receive these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was not homeschooled. I did not go to a Christian school except for one year, first grade. I went to a Christian school for one year. I went to public school all the way throughout my high school years. Again, as most folks in my generation did, uh, you all are the benefits of a great homeschool and uh, you're the beneficiaries of a great homeschool and Christian school movement. I, I was in public school all the way through. And a lot of people look back to their high school years fondly, a lot of sentimentality, thinking about proms and football games and, uh, you know, cruising in their car when they turned 16. I remember going through those four years with the single desire of getting it over with as quickly as possible. The quickest route I could take to get it over with, I wanted that route. I wanted out so very badly, and so I did the very least that was required of me in order to get there so I could get on with my life. I wanted to go do other stuff. I wanted to work. I wanted to try other things, but not sit in a classroom and watch movies, which is what we did a lot of in my high school. I did enjoy history, however, and I had uh, this one history teacher who I, I really liked a lot, and I was actually getting a pretty good grade in his class, so good that I started cruising, and I started feeling as if I'm writing all this stuff out. Every test was an essay test, and I was writing long answers, and I started to think, He's not reading all of this. He thinks that I'm just doing a good job, and I'm sure when I turn in an essay exam, he's just flipping through it and say, oh, yeah, that kid's okay, and I'll just give him an A, and we'll go on to the next one. So there was one day I was in a terrible mood, and I wasn't feeling particularly like writing that day or making up answers to questions that I didn't feel like answering in the first place. So I sat taking a test, 
and started to write, I think it was like a three-page answer was required for uh, scope out the history and the causes for the American War of Independence. And so I'm writing, and I get tired of writing, so I just start writing the words to the national anthem. And then I write the words to some, you know, victory in Jesus or something like that. And I start writing words to hymns and country songs, and I fill up about two pages, and then I start... And as, you know, Benjamin Franklin, and I finished it. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that was, that was pretty clever of me. I really didn't have to work on that at all. And because uh, I thought he just liked me. So I turned in my test, felt like I, you know, he's not reading it. Everybody got their tests back a few days later. And you know what grade I got? See me after class. Did you ever get that grade? Anybody like <laughs> to see me after class? Did you ever get that grade? Uh, he wasn't impressed at all. In fact, he was reading every word, and he wasn't he wasn't snowed at all by that. In Spanish class, we had a competition to see who could build the most creative piñata, and you would be graded on your effort. I'm not sure what that had to do with learning how to speak Spanish, but teachers give you busy work when they don't know what to do, and they run out of things to teach, and they just want you active on something, so they give you projects like this. Build a piñata. Why not? It's Spanish class. Let's do this. So um, I read the instructions. One of the things you could use, has anybody ever made a piñata? Have you ever done paper mache? One of the things you can do to make a piñata is you blow up a balloon, and then you cover it with this paper mache stuff, and you can use it as the base. You know, you can add like toilet paper tubes and, and other paper towel tubes, and you can make different things. But I thought, you know what? A balloon sounds pretty good as a shape. You know, I blew up a balloon, I wrapped it in that gluey paper stuff, and then I wrapped that in tissue paper. It took me all of about an hour, maybe 45 minutes, and I brought it to class. And other, others of my classmates brought in like bears and superheroes and cars and all of these elaborate things, and I brought in mine, which was shaped like a balloon. She said, the teacher said, what is that? Well, obviously, it's a balloon. It's a balloon. You can't have balloon-shaped pinatas. What, is, what country, kind of country is this? Of course. And she said, did you even try? No. <laughs> but... Uh, I met the letter of the assignment, but not the spirit, evidently. Probably the goofiest thing I ever did was in physical education class, PE. In my PE, in when, where I went to high school, you had to take PE every semester. You had to have a PE credit all the way through high school. So all four years, I had to take uh, physical education. And uh, in, in my PE class, you could sign up for electives. So you could sign up for wrestling, like Greco-Roman wrestling, or basketball, or flag football, or softball. And I always loved those days because you could just pick something fun to do, and for the next six weeks or whatever, you would be doing this little unit of study, and you would be graded on how well you did in that unit, whether it was basketball or, or wrestling or other things. One time, I was sick, and I was absent on sign-up day. So I wasn't there to sign up for my elective. I got back to school the next day to find out that the teachers had placed me in a unit, um, which happened to be gymnastics. <laughs> in the girls' gym. <laughs> with 15 girls and two other guys that had also missed sign-up day. 
Now, for the final grade and for most of this six weeks, I'm kind of standing around like, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's a horse thing you get on. And there are rings. What do you do? And there's the vaults. I don't know how to do this. And you you just try to stay out of the way and look like you're doing something if the teacher comes by. You know, you try to, I was with the other three guys. We were like so close at that point. We were best friends. And it came time for the final grade, and the way to be graded was to do some kind of gymnastics routine to be graded on. And so I get the sheet, and the teacher gives this little handout with the mimeograph. Remember those? You know, oh, they smell so good. The mimeographs, sounds, or as soon as they come off, and you see on there the list of things you could do for your final grade for this unit. Pommel horse. I can't do that. Rings. What? I can't do that. Uh, uh, the The... the you know, the vault. I, I, I can't do this. What am I doing? Floor routine. <laughs> What's a floor routine? Well, you can do these various maneuvers and these various little things that, that you can get grades for. And if you do 30 of these, well, you get an A. If you do 20 of them, you get a B. If you do 10, you get a C. I'm a solid C student, and I know that I can do 10. I'm looking down the list. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? I can't do that. I don't even know what that is. I can't do that. Somersault? <laughs> I think I can do a somersault. I can even do 10. I bet I can do 10 somersaults and get a C. So when the time came for me to take my final test in gymnastics in the girls' gym with 15 other girls and my two brothers standing there with me. I stand at the corner of the mat, and I get into the somersault position, which I'm not going to get into now. And I start somersaulting, counting. One, two, three, four, five. I'm at the other end of the mat. I'm at the other corner. I stand up, and I turn around, and I start to do it again. And the teacher said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And I said, you said 10 moves, 10 maneuvers, I get a C. I said 10 different things. I wanted you to do 10 different things. And I said, I just try to get a C. I just wanted it great. And she said, go sit on the bleachers and don't talk to anybody for the rest of this class. But she still gave me a C. I think she felt sorry for me. And those are just three really silly examples of how I just found wherever the bar was and just just barely slid under that bar every time, just found a way to get through it. And I graduated, right? So I, I guess I'm okay now. Some of us think that we're so smart that the, the rules don't really apply to us. And, and what's really important is not obedience. What really is important is just to give everybody the impression that we're being obedient, when in fact, all we're doing is the least possible to barely get by, if, if that. Like the kid who thinks that cleaning her room is shoving everything in closets and under the bed just to get it out of the way. So mom says, did you clean your room? Yeah, I cleaned the floor is clean. You know, I could walk across the floor. We think that we have everybody fooled when in fact, they can really see through our facade. This is why you can't get away with anything, kids. It's because no matter how clever you think your scheme is, your parents have already thought about it before you have, and they probably tried it, and they probably failed and got caught at it. 
I heard a hilarious story a couple of days ago. A guy said, I told my little girl that anytime she lied, her ears turned red. And uh, it's like a two or three year old. And he said, anytime you lie, your ears are going to turn red. So now every time that she's about to tell a story, she comes up like this to her dad. <laughs> and she talks. And he said, okay, well, I know you're lying because you're covering your ears. We, we think we're clever and we look really foolish. It's the sort of thing that God rebuked um, uh, the Pharisees for through Jesus. So Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this very kind of behavior. When it comes to keeping the law, they look for loopholes. They look for back doors. They look for the fine print. They make any excuse they can to get around doing what they're commanded to do, and yet at the same time try to make it look like they're doing what they're required to do. As if you can fool God. As if you can get one over on Him. And it may be clever. It may be inventive. But it's not obedience, and it doesn't help you advance to maturity. It's really just disobedience and rebellion. This morning we looked at three stages of maturity that God brought Israel through and three stages of maturity that God brings humanity through. And if we looked, if we had more time, we could look at the priestly phase of world history and the, and the kingly phase and the, and the prophetic phase or even America's history or even European history. I think we could find some interesting insights there. But to drill down and to keep it relevant to where we are, these are the three phases of your story. These are the three phases of my story, the priestly, the kingly, and the prophetic. Just to quickly recap, the priestly stage is all about learning obedience and submission. It teaches you uh, patience and discipline. When, when you are in the priestly phase of life, as all of you are presently, you may be in the process, however, of, of trans, uh, transitioning to more responsibility. But for the most part, you're priests. You're still under the authority of your parents. The only way to be promoted to more responsibility and more opportunity is to be a faithful priest and then and then possibly uh, to to be promoted to a king once you've fulfilled your duties as and your calling as priests without without shortcuts even Jesus the author of Hebrews tells us uh, even Jesus had to learn obedience now, that may trip your brain for just a second I want to say it again the author of Hebrews says that, Jesus learned obedience. You just let that settle in for a minute. What does that mean? How did Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, learn anything, much less obedience? Well, there's some mystery there, but remember that Jesus is entirely God and entirely man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. And that it pleased God for Jesus to come into the world, not as a grown adult. Jesus didn't come into the world as a superhero. He didn't come into the world as an alien. He came into the world as an infant. He came into the world as a human baby and had to grow up. And now when you think of it that way, you can say, well, yes, then he did have to learn obedience. He had to learn how to walk. Jesus had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to sit at a table and eat. How, he had, Jesus had to learn how to read. Jesus had to learn how to write and sing and listen and obey. Now, he did all of these things without sin. He did all of these things with age-appropriate faithfulness and perfection, but he still had to learn all of these things. And by going through this life and sharing in our human experience the author of Hebrews tells us he becomes our great high priest. 
What I just read a few minutes ago tells us how Jesus became a suitable high priest for us by enduring human suffering, human uh, experience, human discipline, human weakness. And when Jesus was offered shortcuts, when he was offered opportunities to just slide right under the bar, as I learned how to do in high school, when he was given those chances, Jesus refused those. Everything that Satan whispers in the ear of Jesus in the wilderness, everything that Satan tells him that he ought to do, is essentially offering Jesus a shortcut to glory that goes around the cross, that goes around suffering, that goes around obedience to the Father. Everything that the serpent whispers in the ear of Jesus is a shortcut. Cutting out the cross, cutting out the shame, cutting out the rejection. Here's how to save a lot of time. You know what? The apostles also play the role of Satan. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call Peter Satan? Because Peter's doing exactly what the devil did in trying to offer Jesus a shortcut to glory that doesn't go through the cross, that doesn't go through rejection and suffering. And even Jesus' own brothers uh, uh, tried to get him to come away and get off of this, this train that is barreling down the track toward the cross. Over and over and over, Jesus has to reject the shortcut. Over and over and over, Jesus has to, re to, to reject the easy way, and he has to go the hard way, the way of obedience to the Father, the way of discipline. So, what that tells me is if I'm going to be a faithful priest, and if you're going to be a faithful priest, we need to determine that we are going to reject the shortcut. And in fact, those are really goofy stories I told you at the beginning. And I tell you those stories not because I'm a model, but because I'm self-deprecating, and I see how foolish that was and how silly it was, and I repudiate that behavior. I wish I could go back to those teachers and apologize and say, I was a jerk. <laughs> I, I was just a fool. You know, if, if I were you, I would have kicked me out of class. I would have sent me home. Uh, that's, that's not the way to act. And so we have to reject the shortcut. <clears throat> By that, I don't mean if there's a smart, efficient way to do a job and there's a tedious way to do the job, that we always choose the tedious way. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm also, uh, well, I'm, I'm saying don't take the route that avoids the job altogether. That's the shortcut I'm talking about. Or, or the practice of doing things halfway after you've been told to do them a dozen times and just doing it halfway. I'm calling on all of us to reject the shortcut because often when we're presented with two ways of doing something, there's often the easy way and the right way. And often the right way is the hard way and the easy way is often the wrong way. The right way is almost never easy. The right way, the holy way, is almost never painless. It's almost never quick. The, the faithful priest must reject the shortcut. And so let's spend just a few minutes about thinking about what that means and about being faithful priests. So this morning I laid out this outline of, of, of priest, king, prophet. Tonight I want to spend the rest of our time, our few minutes here, on what it means to be a faithful priest and tomorrow morning we'll just uh, spend some time on being faithful kings and a glance at being a faithful prophet and what that means for you. So you are called to be priests. What does that mean? 
What do priests do? What are the responsibilities of priests? You know that priests preeminently were given the duty of leading Israel in sacrificial worship at the tabernacle. It was their job to take the sacrificial animal, prepare it the proper way, and lead the worshiper through the liturgy of sacrifice. So priests have to learn the order of things, learn what God has required, learn what pleases God. And you are priests. Peter writes this, you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you don't lead people through animal sacrifices at all, but, but you're supposed to know just as a priest what God requires. You're supposed to know what God likes and what he doesn't like. Folks in my congregation know that uh, I, I often point to Psalm 123, and I'm going to do it again, uh, asking for their patience. But I love uh, Psalm 123. It says, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he has mercy on us. So we'll drill down and focus on that, those few phrases. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God till he has mercy on us. So if you can think of a courtly king-queen situation, a scene of lords and ladies, of servants, servant men and servant women in a, in a royal court, the, the lady of the manor, the lady of the castle, what does she have to do to get her, her well-trained maidservants to do something for her? Will they know when she's thirsty? Will they know when she's hot? Will they know when she needs to take a break? Will they know when she needs to wipe her forehead? How will they know this? Will they watch her hands? And all she has to do is like this, or like that, or like this, or like, you know, or whatever. They're watching her hands and they know, oh, that's what she needs. That's what she's looking for. They know her so well that they know if she's hungry or thirsty or if she wants the person who's talking to her to go away and go somewhere else. If, if she needs a break, if she needs more sunlight, if she needs fresh air, if she needs warmth, if she needs a coat, they, another log on the fire, they look to her hands and all she has to do is move a finger. All she has to do is make a gesture like that. And they know exactly what she's looking for. As the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters, so our eyes, our eyes look to Yahweh our God. And so there are so many things in the scriptures where God, if we're paying attention, is just doing this. He's just, he's just making subtle movements. And as priests, as his household servants... Our job is to know his word so well that when we see those things, and we see the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink, he doesn't waste his breath, every word that's here is good for us and important for us and essential for us. So we, as his servants, we know his word so well that we can say, oh, that's what he's asking for. That's what he lo is looking for. That's what he wants for us. And then we know it so well that if somebody else asks us, you can say, oh, yeah, yeah. This is what God says about that. Priests are masters of the law of God. Priests are experts in God's word. They know the stories. They know the laws. They know how it all fits together. 
so that you can provide answers and directions to others. That's what priests do. They lead people in obedience to God. So you know what God requires so that you can be counselors to tell right from wrong, clean from unclean. In Leviticus 10, here's what, here's what God says. Yahweh spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. Why are priests forbidden to drink wine or intoxicating drink, especially when they're serving at the tabernacle? Because wine is for rest. You only drink wine after the work is done. Is a priest's work ever done? It's not. Not only that, but he wants them to have a clear mind and clear judgment when they go about their work. And so he says, don't drink wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. And anytime the Bible says, da 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 lest you die, you kind of go back and oh, be sure that I know what he's saying there, lest I die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them by the hand of Moses." So knowledge of what God has said and what he requires isn't just to fill our heads with Bible facts so we can win Bible trivia night somewhere. It's so that we can counsel others. This is what God's word says. This is what he requires. And when you're with your friends and they want to talk about doing something foolish, you say, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. That's theft or that's idolatry or that's speaking falsehood or that's spreading lies. You are able, as God's faithful priest, to name the sin, point it out, and say, this isn't what God requires of us. This is the opposite. This is, this is unclean. Priests are experts at distinguishing between the profane and the sacred. That's a job of the priest. Now, this may drift over a little bit into what I'm going to say tomorrow on wisdom, but that's okay. Because sometimes you need to also be able to say, this may not be explicit sin, but it is stupid. <laughs> this, this may not be wicked. It's just dumb. It's not smart. It's foolish. It's immature. It's worthless. It's time-wasting. Some things are bad for you because they're wicked. Many things are bad for you just because they're dumb. And the teenager who's interested in being a faithful priest is not going to populate their lives, their hearts, their minds with just dumb stuff. And our society has plenty of dumb stuff to fill your life with. Okay, a little bit of dumb stuff is all right. I mean, we all like the dumb stuff, right? Just... How many of you had silly bands five, seven, eight years ago? Does anybody know where your silly bands are today? No? I know you had silly bands because they were everywhere. The cracks of the seats of the car, everywhere. Do you ever have those shoes with the wheels on the heel? Some of you did. Do you still wear those? No? <laughs> you need to be able to look at things and say, that's not cool. That's fleeting. That's dumb. Do you think any of your parents look back at their high school senior picture and say, man, I wish I looked like that today. The same hair, the same clothes. We're, we're kind of embarrassed. <laughs> He who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> Priests in the Bible 
know what God has said so well that you can lead others in obedience, that they're experts in God's law. So you lead people in worship, you, you, you assist people in worship and obedience to God. And also, in addition to that, priests are charged with the duty of guarding holy things. Priests guard the tabernacle, they guard the sanctuary space. In Numbers 18, Yahweh charges Aaron and his sons with the duty of setting up boundaries and keeping those boundaries. In 1 Chronicles 26, there's a whole chapter with lists of names talking about all the people who need to watch the doors and the gates of the temple of meeting. And we get name after name after name. And again, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink and he doesn't waste breath. Why do we have all of these names about who is supposed to guard the gates? Is What it tells me is that God is serious about boundary keeping, about gate keeping. Adam was a priest before God. And what was Adam's duty? His duty was to dress and keep the garden sanctuary. What does keep mean? Keep means protect, it means defend, it means watch over. That was Adam's job as a priest. So priests are guardians, they're gatekeepers. Priests know where the boundaries are and they respect the boundaries. You live in a time and in a generation where people live as if there are no boundaries. There are no limits to what you can say or what you can do or what you can be. I feel like a dolphin today. I feel like a woodland chipmunk today. And I have my own woodland ch chipmunk bathroom. There's no boundaries on what I can be. There are no covenants. There are no curbs on your behavior. Do whatever, be whatever you like, and do whatever it means to you to be free. And that's what it means to be free, right? To have no restrictions, to have no boundaries. Are, are maps restrictive? When you put in an address on Google Maps, is that, is that pretty, you're tired of getting bossed around by Google Maps, turn right, turn left, go straight, take the next exit. Is that constricting? Yeah, it is kind of restricting. Is it good? Is it the good kind of restriction? It's not an onerous thing to be told where to turn. It's pretty helpful. Stay on the path and you'll get there. Go off the route too far and you'll waste your time at best. At worst, you'll end up in a lake or in somebody's front yard. You stay on the path and you'll end up where you're going. Maps are constricting but liberating. And that's what good boundaries do. Good boundaries provide safe, protected places in which to enjoy life and to play and enjoy God's good creation. Let me expand just a little bit on something I said this morning because this is critical and I want you to focus and think about where this applies in your life and what you're experiencing right now with your parents and with your siblings. When you're very small, your life is all about boundaries. Don't touch that, don't go there, don't get too close to that. And as you get older, as I said this morning, your boundaries expand, but they're still there. Priests respect boundaries. And if you're gonna be a faithful priest, you must learn where the boundaries are and respect them. Young man, she's not your wife, don't touch her. Young woman, he's not your husband. Respect the boundary. This house that you're visiting, this is not your house. Act like a guest. Act like, act like a respectful person. This older person that you're speaking to is not your peer. Respect their age. Mr., Mrs., Sir, Ma'am. Your mouth is a boundary, and, and when you're eating, it needs to stay closed so that you're not spitting food at the person across the table from you. You're spitting into their food. 
When you put food in your mouth, you close the boundary and you keep the gate closed until you're done chewing. There's so many places that this is important and critical to know where the boundaries are, to see them. Um, when two adults are talking to each other, you don't like run, steamroll right in between them. And the adults are like, what just happened? Now, that's instruction that I ought to give to six-year-olds, and that should be the end of it. But it's happened like four or five times this week where two adults are talking, either me and another adult or two other adults. I see them talking to each other. Is, is that like a hard and fast boundary? Are we playing Red Rover? Next time I talk to Pastor Virgil, I'm going to hold my hand. I'm going to trip, and we're going to like clothesline the next person that comes between us. There's not a hard and fast. It's an invisible boundary, and the wise, respectful priest understands that there are social boundaries. That there are, there are these, these, these things that you do and you don't do and you follow protocol and you know who is mine to, to talk to like a friend and a peer and who I respect. A faithful priest knows where they are and it's going to take practice. Priests respect boundaries and keep boundaries and they're protectors and guardians of holy things. They respect private things. They are discreet, protect each other's reputations. Good priests protect their friends' reputation. Don't say things that are not yours to say. Don't share. Even if it's true, it's not your truth to share. It's not yours. Protect your church and protect your family by respecting the boundaries. Don't trample idolatry and rebellion into your family or to your church. Respect and protect boundaries. That's what priests learn to do. There's about a million more applications of that. And I hope you don't think I'm being, oh, too picky on pointing out this, pointing out that. It's only because there are about a thousand more things that I could say, and I'm only picking on one or two. Priests, you know, also, in, in addition to leading others in worship and being counselors and saying what God says and repeating it, priests, remember, have some jobs. They have some duties. They offer incense. When they offer incense, that's symbolic of the prayers of the people going up on behalf of Israel and the world. If you're a faithful priest, you know how to pray, and you make it part of your daily discipline. Priests pray. You pray for people around you. You act as an intercessor. You ask God to set things right when things are not right, to heal and forgive and deliver. Priests also commune with the worshipers at the tabernacle and with God in the peace offerings. I mentioned this morning, I think, um, for just a few minutes, that certain offerings were brought before um, were brought before the tabernacle, and the worshiper ate some, and the priest ate some, and the rest was consumed up in the fire on the altar. Um, and priests then lead communal lives; they commune with God and His people, and this is part of who they are. This is their life. Priests lead communal lives. You're not an independent free agent. You're not a loner who doesn't need anybody, who eats by yourself in your room at night. You belong to your family. You belong to your church. You belong to your friends. Your life is with them, not on your own. It's, it's so tempting to try to draw inward, to shut out the world, especially when you're confused or you're anxious or you just can't find your place. And I don't know, I can't fit in. I don't feel comfortable fitting in here. And I'm not, I'm not at rest here. And I don't, so I'm just going to withdraw and go into my, my den. I'm going to go into my cave and I'm not going to come out again for a very long time. You know what? We all go through that. Adults, I bet I, I could ask every adult here, and I'd put money on it. Every adult goes through times where we just feel like 
I just don't, I don't, that's awkward. That relationship is weird. I, I don't, I don't know how to talk to this person. I don't feel right here. The solution to all of that awkwardness is not retreat. We, we think, did I do that right? Did I say that right? I don't know how to, I don't know how to respond to this. We, we all go through that. The only way we get better at it is by engaging, not retreating. Priests lead communal lives. And you don't learn how to lead communal lives shut up in your room by yourself. You don't come in from school, stomp up the stairs, slam your door. Your parents slide, you know, baloney under the door. Are you in there? <laughs> I think they're still alive. I just said something about chewing with your mouth open a minute ago, and i got, I got to say something about this. Do you realize how bad people's table manners are? I Honestly, I'm... I, I might be skewed. I think they're getting much, much worse today. And I've got a theory about that. I think it's because families don't eat together. They don't eat the same food at the same time much anymore. Everyone eats their own food on their own, in their car, in their room, in front of the television. And there's no one around to say, stop smacking your food. That's really disgusting. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. Because when you're just, you know, watching, you know, your cartoons, like, and you're by yourself, you're not offending anybody because you're by yourself. And you act like a pig. But then you go around your friends, and guess what? They're all pigs too because they eat by themselves. And no one knows how to act. And then you find yourself in polite company one day. Everybody's like, who invited the pig? I don't want to hang around this guy anymore. He just sneezed at my nachos. <laughs> you see, everything unravels when we pull away by ourselves. We, we stop learning how to act. And again, I'm picking on this one little thing, but it has so many applications that we learn how to live. We learn how to be human beings, not on our own, but in community. That's the only way we learn how to be normal. If you're by yourself, you will be weird. And you will only get weirder and weirder, and no one will want to be around. It's like this, this catch-22 thing where it's like that person doesn't know how to function. It's going to have to take a very loving person to come wrap their arms around you and say, stop digging in your ear with your pencil. Stop picking your nose with your keys. People don't do that. We don't do that. Um, priests lead communal lives, not these hyper-individualistic lives. I'm probably running out of time now. Oh boy, okay. Priests, last thing, I'll just do this. Priests have special clothes, don't they? The garments of the priests symbolize that they represent the people of God before the face of Yahweh. And not only did the priests have special clothes, but you also know that the people of Israel had special clothes as well. The people of Israel had priestly-like robes to wear. And what was special about their robes? Does anybody know anything about what they wore? Just anything at all? Was there any special feature? They had four of something. You know what they had four? Four, four corners and four tassels. That's exactly right. The corners are also known as wings, right? Boaz spread the wing of his garment over Ruth when she sat at his feet. God's people wore robes with four wings. What's up with that? Why would they have wings? Who else has wings? The angels have wings. 
God's people are like the angels who serve God before his throne. God says, go to his angels and his angels go. God says, come here and his angels come. God's priests and his priestly people are like his angels serving in front of his throne. And the way that you can tell this about his people is because of the way that they're dressed. They aren't dressed like the nations around them. They have special clothes. Now, you don't have to wear wings. In fact, I don't expect you to wear wings. But you all know what people wear when they want to look like the culture of death and rebellion. There's a uniform. You know when you see somebody, you say, oh, yeah, they're trying to look like death. And they're trying to look like rebellion. And there's a uniform. There's makeup and a hairstyle to go with it. And you say, yep, there it is. That's exactly what it is. But, but at the same time, we want to act like uh, that, that, that this is all just relative. You know, that, that this doesn't really matter. That there's not a, such a thing as modesty and attractiveness and loveliness and handsomeness. We want to act like it's all just, it's all just subjective. But if I ask you, what does a sexually promiscuous boy look like? What is a, what is a, what is a tramp boy or girl look like? You could describe that to me. You could tell me, oh yeah, I'll tell you what that looks like. Yeah, because it's a uniform and you, we all know and don't pretend like you don't know what that looks like. If I ask you to describe the appearance of a worldly pagan teenager who shows their rebellion through their clothes, you would be able to tell me what they look like. And a faithful priest would be able to identify that uniform and dress in a way that runs profoundly in the opposite direction, that would, that would love modesty and loveliness and humility and, and attractiveness. And I'm not talking about taking out a tape measure and saying this is a holy hemline and this is an unholy hemline. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you know what the uniform looks like. I don't have to tell you. You know what it looks like. You know what the opposite. Priests have special clothes. So let me sum this up real quickly. In summary, priests serve at the house of the king. Priests are the household servants of Yahweh. They watch his hands. They watch his fingers. They watch his expression. They know what he likes and what he dislikes. They stand at his house. They wait on him. They obey him. They find out what delights my king, what delights him and makes him happy so that I can delight to do it. I am pleased to please him, and he is so pleased with me that he makes it a pleasure to serve him as his priest. So right now in this stage of life, teenagers, you're, you're priests. You have rules. You have boundaries. Embrace them. Love them. No shortcuts. There are things you have to submit to to learn obedience, just like Jesus did. You think Jesus asked you to do something that he didn't do? No, he did this. He was a faithful priest. He respected boundaries. He obeyed God's law. He was a faithful priest. You want responsibility? You want to rule? That's the next phase. You'll never get there. You'll never get to the kingly phase of responsibility unless you first are a faithful priest. You have all the opportunity in the world if you first learn to obey and submit, just like your Lord Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to, uh, for, to, to continue to conform all of us, young and old, male and female, to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Make us a, a kingdom of priests who know what you want and who know what you desire, know what makes you happy, and we spend all of our energy pursuing the things that you delight in. Uh, give us your spirit so we can do this faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.